This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I'm Marianne Hitt, and this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, Marianne and I are continuing our series called How Then Shall We Live? Exploring the question, do our personal choices matter? Our topic for this episode is energy. And y'all, we have such a great guest for you. Veteran energy and political reporter Michael Grunwald of Politico. He talks with us about going solar and buying an EV, among other things. And it is such a fun conversation that is going to surprise and inspire you. So get ready. But first... Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Hey, Marianne. Happy May. Hello, Anna Jane. Spring is here. I'm coming back to life. <laughs> I know, right? I totally feel that. <laughs> well, I'm so excited about this episode today and, uh, you were not able to join the conversation, so I'm especially excited to talk to you about it now that you've had a chance to listen to it. Um, but I talked with Mike Grunwald of Politico, um, and I just have to uh, give you a little uh, spoiler alert here that the conversation I had with them then led me to make this big decision in my life. So he wrote this article for Politico about how he had made the decision to go solar and buy an EV in recent years because it made so much uh, economic sense for him because it was such a, it saved him money. And after talking to him a few days later, my car, my very old Subaru, uh, it drove its last mile oh, into no. the car graveyard, into the great beyond of beloved cars. And so we had to buy a new car. And I, on Monday night, bought a new all electric Chevy Bolt that is powered by the solar panels on my garage. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Congratulations. Union made in America, never have to go to the gas station again. And it is so fun to drive. That's the thing. It's like, it is so fun. And so it's like roomy and spacious and fun to drive. And I don't know, my husband and I are feeling like we'll never go back. It has like a 230 mile range, so we can't take it on long road trips. But for most of the places we go, it meets all of our needs. And I'm just like, I'm converted. Ooh, I have religion about the electric vehicles. Now. <laughs> can't wait to take it out for a spin when I see you next. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We'll go cruising. Oh, I'd love that. You know, I grew up in Gatlinburg where we cruised up and down the strip. Oh, so yeah. I'm an expert at cruising. We did that in Wilkesboro <laughs> too. Wilkesboro, North Carolina. I also have big car news. Very exciting. Oh, tell me more. <laughs> so I haven't had a car for years by choice. Like I really prefer to walk or take public transportation. Um, and I don't actually like 
driving that much despite all the cruising I did when I was younger. It makes me a little nervous. Um, but when we moved down here to Alabama, we were pretty rural. So you have to drive like a good 20 to 30 minutes to get to anything. Um, but I work from home. So mostly I could just borrow cars from my relatives or uh, drive in to work with Forrest and, and borrow his car for the day. Um, but eventually it got to a point where I was like, okay, you actually need to be an adult and buy a car probably because it was a little troublesome. So we found this like adorable BMW that is a year older than I am. So it's a 1984. <laughs> a classic, just like you. Oh, thanks. But no, it was, <laughs> it was really cool. It, it does have, it's not great gas mileage, but it's better than than our kind of our truck that Forrest drives sometimes. And it, it was kind of like a little bit of a magical experience because my dad had a BMW when I was little. And I always kind of wanted one. And we can't like afford an electric vehicle or a, ne- a new BMW at this moment in our lives. But the fact that the universe like gave us this really cute little classic BMW that was very affordable with decent da- gas mileage was like, it was fun. I've- well, you know, Grist said we were the car talk of climate change. <laughs> and if we're not careful, we are actually going <laughs> to become the actual car talk yes. of climate change. But don't we worry, can, listeners, like- I still don't drive it very much, only when I need to. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, and we have... Uh, you know, we have to all um, do our part because our friend Scott Pruitt uh, is trying to roll back our fuel efficiency standards and uh, get rid of California's ability to set higher standards for cars, including requiring more electric vehicles out there on the road. Um, as part of his, uh, I'm I just don't even know where to start, Anna Jane. The man is like, he is, it's like a parade of like ethical uh, malfeasance and pay to play dealings with polluters. And he's been on the front page of the newspaper day in and day out. And it's, uh, you know, I guess if I, if I wanted to boil down my feelings about Scott Pruitt's um, public exposure as being the kind of corrupt frankly, person that he is, I would say, you know, on the one hand, the fact that we're focusing on things like inappropriate bonuses and, and, you know, soundproof telephone booths and whatever sort of weird, unethical things he's done, he could be seen as a, yeah, could be seen as like a distraction from his gutting of our environmental laws. But I actually think it's sort of all part of the same package, which is, if this is what he's, this, if these are his ethics of how he conducts his business, these are also the ethics with which he's like protecting the safety of your drinking water and protecting the future of our climate and the, whether the air is safe for your kids to breathe. And so it is all sort of part of a whole, which is, you know, who's going to call the shots, people with integrity or people who are willing to break the rules to do the bidding of polluters. And uh, basically every single day we have one more piece of new evidence that we know which side Scott Pruitt is on. So it's it's just... Yeah, it's crazy. There was a great tweet today, or maybe it was yesterday, but it was this one journalist who was like, at this point, it would be news if Scott Pruitt actually did something ethical. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it's just like a monstro... Like, every every day, there's some new ridiculous story about lobbyist relationships and payouts or... But and I agree, it's not the personal ethics. I mean, the personal ethics are are appalling and disgusting, and absolutely should lose him his job. But when you couple on that the fact that he's like the worst EPA administrator in in the like history of the country, then yeah, I think it is a whole package of badness that needs to go. And hopefully it will. And at the same time, listeners never fear that groups like the Sierra Club and many others are the ones who are doing the open records requests, revealing all this information uh, and acting on it and also making sure that we 
fight all of his rollbacks in the courts and also keep making progress uh, in spite of him on the ground. So still many reasons to be hopeful, but Scott Pruitt is uh, he's like a cartoon he piece of work. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, Sierra Club and Marianne and all the amazing groups doing work on this. So I had a really interesting experience this past week to set this story up there. I'm on Twitter. You guys can can follow me at, at Anna Jane Joyner. But there was this really fascinating Twitter conversation that happened where a journalist named Matt Iglesias, who's a, a podcaster, he works for Vox. He's um, got a lot of, of you know brilliant thoughts on politics and economics and all sorts of things, kind of weighed into the climate conversation, which he doesn't do very often. So he's not like a climate wonk per se. But somebody had asked him, like of all of the issues out there, what would you, what would be your platform for 2020, you know, if you were running? And he responded um, in kind of a glib tweet, you know, if it were up to me, if I was running the world, I would do everything I could to fight climate change and put everything else on the back burner. But, you know, the politics are impossible and we're all doomed, <laughs> which is uh, not the most hopeful of messages. And it, it that would not be the um, the approved outlook of no place. like <laughs> <home>. <laughs> yeah. And the politics are impossible and we're all doomed is not our slogan. Yeah, no, not a slogan. <laughs> um, and it, be, you know, obviously sparked a lot of conversations and a bunch of people jumped in. And I think we're rightly calling him out for like just kind of wading shallowly into this conversation and, and just announcing that we're we're all doomed from this position of somewhat privilege. But some of the, the responses, I was watching them come in and, and they just sort of graded on me. There was a lot of uh, guilt and shaming, like you're... You're lazy for suggesting you're doomed. You know we're doomed. How can you have children and have this position, um, or you're or you're privileged and therefore you don't have the right to feel despair and um, and you know hopelessness around this? And which I think there's there's truth to all those things, but I think it it sort of bothered me for two reasons. It kind of harkened back to that article that came out by New York Magazine. There was a very kind of dark picture a couple months ago that sparked a lot of these conversations. And there was just a lot of like tone policing and like, you can't talk about climate change in this way. You have to be hopeful about it. And I I think that struck me as that that was problematic for me because, you know, as someone who has focused on climate communications for a big chunk of my career, that's constantly looking at content and narratives and the way that we talk about this issue, I don't think the climate change movement does it very well most of the time. There's definitely exceptions, but I don't think we figured it out. There's not like a clear answer about how to talk about this issue in a way that mobilizes people and motivates people. Right. It's not like you're doing it wrong and we know how to do yeah. it right and let us tell you how to do exactly. it right because we obviously have got that nailed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was just like, this guy's just waiting into this conversation. At least he's saying something. I mean, that's a step in the right direction is like saying this is the most important issue of our time. And so that bothered me because there was it felt like there was a lot of kind of moralistic like we do it right you're you're doing this wrong and and I just hate that I think we really need to have a a bigger I mean one of you know studying creativity and innovation like one of the first things you learn is you need diverse perspectives who are coming from different places to weigh in on on how to how to creatively and compellingly communicate and and reach people um, so that bothered me on like a professional level, having followed these conversations in a while. But on a personal level, it really bothered me that the idea that feeling despair around this is somehow wrong or shameful, like really, I don't know, because, you know, just as a person who has been an activist doing this for a long time, I've definitely gone through periods where I felt despair and and couldn't always get up and do the work be because of that. And I think that 
I think that if we're, I don't think that shaming people or guilting people because that is a response to looking at the, at the scale and severity of this problem is a healthy or graceful way of handling it. You know, like I think Mm -hmm. that actually when people really do start to reckon with climate change, one of the natural first responses is despair and sadness and, and a feeling of hopelessness. And there needs to be, there needs to be space for holding people who are there. And, and it's, you know, like when I was in those, in those moments, it definitely would not have been helpful had people have been like, you're lazy and privileged and how dare you feel these things and let them overwhelm you to the point of where you can't like get up and do your activism, you know, like that would have, uh, that would have made it worse. And, and I, I don't think that we uh, have really grappled with even like the mental health repercussions of, of how hard this is. Frankly, like the vast majority of people, one of the reasons I think they're not engaged on climate change is because they feel like we're doomed and it's overwhelming. Mm. Like you're saying, like policing people to say you're not allowed to feel that way about it versus allowing for there to be some space for it and then offering up maybe um, something that that feels hopeful in a meaningful way. Honestly, in the conversation that I had with Mike Grunwald, um, he brought up a great example of uh, LED lights and how they have gone from, um, you know, being very marginal to now you basically can't buy an old fashioned light bulb anymore in the store. Um, and we've had like a, a light bulb revolution yeah. in less than a decade and it's because they're cheaper and they're better and, um, things can change very quickly for the better. Um, but if someone, someone like this says, Hey, it's, you know, sorry, the, the pot and you know, right. That, that is one example of, of, you yeah, know, the ten- zoom, zoom out further to the electric sector of how quickly we're moving away from coal and how quickly clean energy is growing and changes can happen really fast. And there are reasons like very real reasons to be hopeful, but, but people's first reaction to this is the politics are impossible and we're all doomed and arguing with them over that being their first response is not bringing them into the conversation. Yeah, it just shuts people down. And I think that it also, you know, I mean, I have high hopes in humanity that we figure this out. Obviously, I wouldn't still be doing this if I didn't have those, you know, have, you know, have those hopes and, and believe that it is, you know, even no matter how little or much we can do to make it less bad is 100% worth our time and energy. I don't disagree with that at all. I just think that we are, you know, this is a, uh, a problem unlike anything humans have ever grappled with before. And it is big and, and somewhat existential. And I think that some of the emotions that accompany that are, are, are hard. And I don't think it's uh, welcoming or giving people space to engage or to, to feel a part of the solution or the conversation if you're just shutting them down and saying, you know, despair is a lazy feeling. You know, it's it's actually, you know, I think it's important to have grace and be gentle with each other, especially as you're just kind of fully reckoning with this with this scenario. Um, that said, I, I definitely think you have to have, you know, and, and it was fascinating too. like that Twitter thread sparked so much conversation, like multiple climate scientists were responding to me, Bill McKibben weighed in. And he, he said something really thoughtful that was just like, you know, there are years there are times when you feel one way or another and you just, you have to hope that staying engaged in this movement long term is, is worth it. And, and like, and, and I do think you, there's a lot of, a lot of courage in just continuing to show up even when you don't always feel hopeless, you know, hopeful, but I don't think shutting people down or shaming them or guilting them over feeling despair is, is something the climate movement wants to be in the business of. Matt Iglesias, call <laughs> us. 
we uh we welcome your very logical uh feelings of doom and impossible politics and we also would like to talk to you about some of the rays of hope that we bring to the show every episode and uh bring to the work that we do yeah definitely um yeah so that was fascinating but what's also fascinating is this awesome interview we have coming up it's hilarious he was so raw and real and i just loved every minute of listening to it so and speaking of rays of hope uh so mike grunwald is incredible i met him because he had written a big feature story about the beyond coal campaign in politico that uh, it was an incredible piece about our work, um, but he's a surprising person to be so hopeful because he's, <laughs> as you'll hear in the interview, he's kind of he cynical. Tells you like he's it is, kind of you know, a, like he... <laughs> he does, he does. He is not some sort of climate Pollyanna, but he's, um, and he's very funny, but he is the author of The Swamp, which is an incredible book about the Everglades and politics in Florida. And another book called The New New Deal, which was about the much maligned, but not very well understood Obama stimulus and especially all the good things it did for clean energy. And then the article we're talking about is called My Life in the Elusive Green Economy that was in Politico magazine recently. So it's a great conversation. I can't wait for y'all to hear it. And we will get to that conversation right after this. Hi, my name is Dan and I'm from historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Here's your dinner party climate fact of the week. Did you know that the climate impact of a solar panel depends on where it lives? Here in West Virginia, more than 90% of our power comes from coal, so a solar panel can have the greatest impact of anywhere in the country. To get the same carbon reduction from one panel in West Virginia, you'd need two panels in Massachusetts, four in California, and more than 150 solar panels in Vermont. Welcome to No Place Like Home, Mike Grunwald. Nice to talk with you. Wow, thanks for having me. So we are doing a little series here, Anna Jane and I, about personal choices. And uh, frankly, part of the inspiration was this cognitive dissonance. I think a lot of people feel around all this pressure to buy from the like the green police to make all of these right personal choices and then yet feeling like the planet is still on fire and would it really matter if I just ate meat and, you know, drove around in my diesel powered car all day. And so we wanted to dive into some of those big subjects. And we started off with uh, having kids in the era of climate change, which a lot of people uh, are alarmed about and talked about food. And now I wanted to talk to you about energy because you uh, had wrote a great piece about this in Politico. So to just get us started, for those who haven't read the piece, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, the title is My Life in the Elusive Green Economy and uh, about some choices you made around going going solar and buying an electric car. So could you just set that up for folks and, and tell them what the what the article was about? Well, sure. I mean, uh, as, as you know, because uh, you've been a source in the past, I'm, you know, I'm a reporter. Uh, I write a lot about climate. Um, I'm very concerned about climate. <laughs> I, uh, I like the earth. You know, it's... Uh, it's the only planet with ice cream and pizza and Netflix. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, 
I want to do my part. I'm very worried about it. I do not doubt any of the science, and uh, and we're destroying it. So that's that's bad. I'd like to help, but I'm also kind of a normal person, <laughs> you know. I uh, you know I like meat. I eat a lot of meat. Um, I probably shouldn't, but I do. Um, you know, I don't line dry my clothing or compost my garbage or unplug my laptop at night. And I'm definitely never even occurred to me not to have children because of the climate. Because, you know, I have awesome children. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kill them either. Um, I did, uh, I did like 10 years ago, I looked into going solar when I moved to, when I moved to Florida. And it was preposterous. Um, I remember the, the guy I talked to on the phone was sort of like, uh, you know, he's like, well, is money any object? And I was like, uh, yeah. Isn't it for most people? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, 10 years ago, solar was ludicrous. Um, but sort of long story short is that it's no longer ludicrous. Even in Florida, where the utilities control the legislature and make it very difficult um, for you to go solar, put solar panels on your roof, um, I was able to do it. Um, it looks like I'm on track for like a seven-year payback. And it's even better because then I uh, I got a Chevy Bolt, um, which I charge at home. So I kind of brew the fuel on my roof. And uh, and that is also extremely economical now. Um, I like to think of it basically it's like every time I drive 10, do- 10 miles, it's like putting a dollar in the jar um, that I save on gasoline. And so uh, – so, you know, it used to be that grow that green was this kind of niche thing for Ed Begley Jr. types. Um, and you, Marianne, no, no offense. Oh, of course. Well, you know, Ed Begley Jr. and I are basically soulmates. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's just like a smart, reasonable thing to do. I mean, the, uh, you know, like my, I love my electric car. My wife and I fight over who gets to drive it. Um, and when you think about what a gas car is, it's like a kind of like, internal combustion, you know, constant explosion machine. Um, and it sort of makes no sense um, while we have plugs all around us. And for some reason, like, you know, plugging in your car has seemed weird. So I feel like I'm just sort of a normal person. And right now what's normal to do is to go green. That's great. That's great. Well, I know uh, I met you through an article that you wrote about the Beyond Coal campaign back in 2015. And I know one of the reasons that the campaign interested you was because we were trying to achieve systemic change in how we make electricity in this country, no longer making it with coal and and increasingly transitioning to renewable energy. And so um, as you were personally going through this, through these steps of going solar and getting an electric car, do you feel like that that there's any sort of uh, trade-off around personal choices versus kind of the systemic changes in terms of where we put our energy, or do you think now that it now that it makes money, we can just we can do both and everybody wins? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, one thing I've always felt very strongly is that um, you know I think it would be great if everybody sort of changed their lifestyles in good ways that are good for the earth, um, but I don't think it's realistic to just expect everybody to do that out of the goodness of their heart. Um, you know, uh, when solar was expensive, nobody went solar. And now that solar is cheap, people are slowly starting to go solar and more people need to learn that it's, uh, that it's, you know, this is a sort of cost effective lifestyle that doesn't change your lifestyle. Um, and 
the political challenge, I think, is making sure that the fossil fuel industries and uh, for whom, you know, solar is death and the utilities for whom solar is kind of inconvenient and depending on how it's structured could be death um, to make sure that they they become part of the solution uh, rather than part of the problem. And I think um, it's a little silly, this idea that sort of change happens one, idea, you know, one person at a time. Like I have this awesome app where I get to, uh, where I get to see how much, you know, how much money I'm saving through solar, uh, the equivalent of, I think, since July, I've planted like 1,500 trees. And that's all great. But that's sort of, you know, somebody making a nice choice is not going to save the world. Um, what's going to save the world is, uh, is people who do what you're doing, um, you know, by shutting down coal plants, by changing the macro picture, which is just going to make it so much easier for millions of people like me to change the micro picture. And then uh, I think there's a couple of different threads from that. One is, you know, if every time we all turned on our light switch, that was being powered by solar power, at one level, none of us would have to make a different choice. You know, if the utilities, we can do our do our good advocacy and get them powering powering the grid with with solar and wind with vehicles it's a little trickier because ultimately there is a uh, an individual decision about what car you're going to buy and um and so what are, what are your thoughts again as a driver of an electric vehicle that could be a tipping point there where suddenly instead of a few people choosing to buy electric vehicles or a few you know hundred thousand i'm not sure what the numbers are but what do you think the tipping point is there First of all, first of all, on the, the rebound effect with, uh, for energy, you know, with solar and stuff, there's, there's, there's no doubt that there's some, there's some truth to this notion that now that I have LED lights and, uh, and now that I have solar panels, I'm less anal about, about, you know, telling my kids to turn off the lights and, uh, and I'm less anal about making sure that the, you know, the doors close when, you know, when the dogs go outside. But who gives a shit? I mean, that's like, that, that is really, it doesn't matter. I am like, I, I am doing a lot of good, you know, energy wise. And it's, there is a little bit of a rebound effect. Or actually what, actually what I was getting at was more, um, we, if we do good advocacy, then we aren't totally so reliant on people's personal choices anymore, you know? And if people do waste a little bit. It's way more effective to get me to put solar, solar panels on my roof because it's just like the sensible thing to do than it is to try to harass me to, you know, turn my lights off and, you know, and uh, unplug my computer at night and line down, line dry my clothes and do all kinds of other things. Yeah. That are in- or if the utility just comes and puts solar power on your roof or if the utility just powers its own grid with solar and wind and you don't actually ever have to make a choice in there. It's just the, the energy come in and your house is clean, period, end of story. And I should mention that my utility, uh, Florida Power and Light, or as I like to call them, Florida Plunder and Loot, um, they are doing, they are doing a terrific job of building solar plants. They're building them all over, all over the state. And sometimes some of them they're hooking up with batteries. Um, so they're like, you know, providing baseload power day and night, um, because solar has gotten so cheap. So they want to take advantage of that. Of course, they don't want me to take advantage of that. They'd rather sell me power. Well, I paid FPL $9.59 this month. They liked it a lot better when I was paying them $400 and $500 a month. Is that really the difference? Is that the difference? That's remarkable. Wow. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and this is a really big deal. So, uh, so electric, electric vehicles, I should say one thing that's better about electric vehicles is that they're better. 
Um, there's just more fun to drive. I mean, I'm not a car person, um, but if you read the like the the auto reviews of Teslas, it's like reading teenage boys reviewing porn. I mean, uh, you know, people <laughs> just love these cars. Now, my, I have a Chevy Volt, um, which I like because it was super cheap. Um, and uh, though, granted, I got it slightly cheaper because here in Miami, most people who can afford an electric car, they buy Teslas. And so when I went to the Chevy dealership, they were like shocked that I actually wanted the Volt. The first, the first guy I, I talked to, he was like, bro, you know that like that car, it's going to take gasoline. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I know. So I ended up getting it like $6,000 under split price, which made the economics better. Um, but when you drive it, it's just, it handles nice. It's, I had never noticed how noisy cars were. And they're noisy because they're, you know, they're exploding under the hood like five times every second. They yeah. have. Like, can you believe you drive something that has something called an ignition? Like, rocket ships have ignition. They have, like, <laughs> spark plugs. And it's like, you know, they have an exhaust pipe. So, like, exhaust. That's crazy. Um, when you drive an electric car, it's, like, just smoother. It handles nicer. It doesn't make noise. We have these crazy wild peacocks in our neighborhood. And the one problem I've had with an electric car is that they don't get out of the way when I'm coming. They, they don't, don't hear you me. coming. <laughs> um, but seriously, there is there is one obvious problem with uh, electric vehicles, and that's the range anxiety thing. Um, and I should say that the Chevy Bolt, it is much less of a problem because I have 238 miles of range. And the range anxiety for folks not familiar with that term is the fear you're going to run out of battery before you get where you're where you can charge it back up again. So 238 miles is actually about as much as I could go on my old beater Volvo that I used to fill up with gas that got horrible gas mileage. Um, but of course there's a, you know, there are gas stations all over the place and there are not, you know, electric chargers all over the place. So when I drive around the city, it's no problem whatsoever. I drive, I go wherever I need to go. I drive these enough to Fort Lauderdale. You know, 70 miles, you know, I drive 70 miles, I drive 70 miles back, no problem. Then I just come home and plug it in. But I did, I wrote in my piece that I had to do a couple of road trips to Southwest Florida. And there was one, I count them, one super fast charger in between Miami and uh, where I needed to go once to Fort Myers and once to Boca Grande. It was in this, uh, it was in the parking lot of a Best Western in Naples. And once I actually arrived like 15 seconds before another guy in the Chevy Bolt. And oh. so he had to wait, he had to wait, he had to wait an hour while I, while I charged. Wow. Um, so that's, that's a problem. It's such an easily fixable problem. Um, but I did some reporting on this and it, it seems to me it's kind of a problem the government's going to need to fix. Cause there's just, it, the economics just don't work for a private company to put in to put in the super fast chargers on the highways. You really don't need that many. Um, but my in-laws live in Orlando and it's kind of crazy that I can't take my car to, to go see them right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that sounds like a role for advocacy there too, which we all know when you get to these hurdles and barriers and tipping points that smart advocacy can also help push things in the right direction. You should take this on because I mean, honestly, the difference between having zero super fast chargers in between here in Orlando on the, on the Florida turnpike and having like a dozen 
um, would make all the difference. But it really does cost quite a lot to put in those super fast chargers because, you know, you have to put in a whole, you basically need like super, you know, kind of substation. It's, there's all kinds of utility work that needs to be done and the utilities don't want to do it. So um, if, do you have, obviously you need some money up front to do all these things, but then you're saving a whole bunch of money uh, on the other side of it. And the electric vehicle is super fun to drive. So uh, for anybody who's listening out there, who's thinking about either of these uh, where they live, uh, any, any advice about which to do first or where to start or um, based on what you learned? Yeah. So something, first of all, if you live in a state like California, it's not money up front. Like you can go to Solar City or I guess now they're called Tesla. Um, and you can put no money down, sign a 20 year contract. Well, they'll guarantee you a lower electric bill and they'll put solar on your roof. Um, and you never have to think about it again. Um, now I can't do that because in Florida, it's illegal. It is literally illegal to have a solar lease. Um, so I had to write a very, very large check, um, that I am now, I can look at my app. Um, I've, my solar panels have generated $4,000 worth of, worth of power, um, in the eight months since I installed them. So like I said, it's going to pay back in seven years, but, uh, but in states where they make it difficult, it's difficult, um, and the electric vehicles, except for the Volt and the, you know, the Tesla Model 3 are mostly still expensive, but the cost, and that's because the batteries are still expensive. But the cost of batteries has come down 80%, uh, since 2009, and they're going to keep coming down. Um, so it's just going to become cheaper and cheaper. And presumably as they become more and more prevalent, there'll be more and more chargers and, uh, range anxiety will be less and less of a problem. I'll tell you, it did, it did, I had to spend $500 for a home charger, um, that I can basically charge overnight. It, I get full in like four or five hours. Um, I had to also spend like $500 to get an electrician to, to set it up. So that was an, an additional cost. But electric cars, aside from never having to go to a gas station again, um, you hardly ever have to go to the maintenance. Like, you know, when I have to get my oil changed, Never. Never. <laughs> there are 10,000 parts, I think, in a, in a typical internal combustion vehicle. The Chevy Bolt has like a couple hundred. Um, it's just a much more, it's like driving a golf cart, cart, except it's not a golf cart. Well, I, um, I, I, my husband and I were the first people, we live in the oldest town in West Virginia, and we were the first people here to go solar and inspired lots of our neighbors to go solar. And we too had to pay some money up front that we're slowly making back, but we don't yet have an electric vehicle. And I have a car that's about to die and we are planning to buy one. And it is in uh, no small part because of your article. So, um, so thank you for, uh, thank you for that. Even though I am a true environmentalist myself, it turns out I, I needed you to convince me of uh, <laughs> greening even my own lifestyle. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, you know, been able to hook up a bunch of my friends with solar and trying to push them into electric vehicles too. And I think it's partly like, you know, not to, you know, it's partly because I don't come off that green, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm just another asshole who, who likes to save money. And, uh, and I think that makes, and look, I do, I do think this is, this is the crisis of our time. Um, and I do care that, uh, that, you know, 
I live in Miami. I don't want, I want my children to be able to live here, um, above water. Um, and, and I think the, you know, all the, everything I've learned through reporting about global warming has scared the shit out of me. Um, but, uh, but I'm, but that said, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna do it out of the goodness of my heart. Um, I was only gonna do it when it made sense. And I think, you know, I was able to persuade a lot of people that, now this makes sense. Well, um, you're an incredible political reporter as well. And I'd be remiss if I didn't, uh, uh, before we close out here, touch on our crazy environmental and climate politics. And, you know, one thing, one thing to note is that the, the economics being on the side of clean energy, it came just in time because, uh, we obviously have Donald Trump trying to unravel this all as fast as he can with his henchman Scott Pruitt and company. And yet the economics are not on their side anymore. And so just I just would love to hear your thoughts and for our listeners about how these kind of choices that you're making tie into the politics of of the moment and, you know, ultimately what kind of damage you think Trump can or can't do to the progress we're making. That's a, that's a great question. And uh, at the risk of sort of plugging uh, myself a bit, um, you know, I did, uh, this, this, the fact that green has gotten cheap is not an accident. Um, I wrote a book about, uh, President Obama's stimulus bill in 2009. Remember the porculus that everybody hated and made fun of? Um, my book is called The New New Deal, partly about how the, the stimulus, you know, saved the economy when we were losing 800,000 jobs a month and, and within six months we were out of the recession. But it's also about some of the long-term stuff that was in the stimulus, including $90 billion for clean energy. And, you know, the stimulus created an electric vehicle battery industry in the United States. Um, it rescued the renewable power industry in the United States when wind turbines were, were literally rusting in the fields and, uh, and solar was dead in the water. Um, so this didn't happen by accident. It happened because of policy. Um, that really was the jump start that had that, uh, that set, um, clean energy on, on the road to becoming cheap. Uh, now we have the opposite kind of policy, um, trying to revive dirty energy. And because clean has gotten cheap, I think it's probably too late. What, uh, what Donald Trump has been able to do is prevent further progress. Um, you know, you even saw solar tariffs, which have bumped up the cost of solar power a little bit for the for the first time in for the first time in nine years. Um, and uh, and it's a problem. You know, it's not it's suboptimal because one of the things you learn when you study global warming is that you need to solve this problem fast. Um, the work that you've done with Beyond Coal is so incredibly important because we need to get rid of coal now. Um, transportation is going to be a much tougher nut to change over time. Um, but we need to get our electricity sector towards zero emissions instantly. And it doesn't help to have, you know, people in charge of public policy who are trying to go the opposite direction. Um, they can't turn back the clock, but, uh, but this is a time where we ought to be moving a lot faster. And, <laughs> and as you know all too well, um, the, the question is how much can we prevent them from stopping progress, not how much progress are we going to make. Well, on that, on that same note, one of the things that struck me when we talked before was, um, your, you know, you have a, I think a clear eyed view of human nature and how complicated all this is. And 
you are, at least you were at the time, hopeful about our ability to get out in front of the climate crisis because the solutions are they're right in front of us and uh, and it's just a matter of getting them done. So I'm just uh, curious about based on both living in living through the Trump era and your own experience going green, whether how, how's your hope uh, meter these days? You know, as, as you probably remember from back then, I am a, you know, I, I think I'm a climate realist, um, you know, and that this problem is, is a, it's a nuclear bomb heading for the planet. Um, and, you know, it's as bad as all the screaming banshee scientists say. Um, but where I do think that I have pretty consistently stood apart from a lot of other climate hawks is that I've been a climate optimist. Um, and I guess I would say that I'm now even more so. I mean, look at LED lighting. Um, you know, I remember I did probably the worst selling cover in the history of Time magazine in 2008 <laughs> about, uh, about energy efficiency. I remember my, the, uh, the editor actually chewed me out about how horrible our newsstand sales that month were that month <laughs> because literally the cover was like a, a picture of one of those squiggly light bulbs that everybody hated, um, you know, because they like buzzed and, you know, yeah. made that nasty yellow light. Um, but that was 10 years ago. And, uh, and now like the problem is solved, you know, yeah, uh, LED, LED, LED lights went from, in 10 years from like zero or 1% of the market, they were like in traffic lights to the market. <laughs> like that's what sells now. Like you can get sure. them, you can get like a couple for six bucks at, at Walmart and you'll never put in, you know, you'll never have to change your light bulbs again. They last for like 15 years. So I just think that the power, I'm, you know, maybe I'm a capitalist. I'm a believer in technology. These things didn't happen without government. Um, the government had to put in the research and the government had to help the deployment. But now that this stuff is out there, it's going to happen fast. Um, I think it's going to, it's already happening for solar, um, particularly at the utility scale where these are just questions of, uh, you know, do the utilities want to make money or do they not want to make money? And I think it will eventually happen at the, uh, at the individual scale where these choices become a little bit more complicated. And I think it's going to happen with electric vehicles, too. Um, you know, we're still going to have to adapt to climate change. And, uh, you know, it, it probably won't be have to move quite as fast as I think it's going to happen. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think it's going to happen a lot faster than a lot of the pessimists think it's going to happen. Because once stuff gets cheap, people buy it. Uh, well, your climate optimism is uh, is welcome here and always, and I appreciate it a lot. And I agree with you. So, um, thank you for t thank you for telling that story in a way that I think maybe struck a lot of people for the first time or sunk in for a lot of them the first time. And I hope all of our listeners will will read the article. And I have loved the conversation. So, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And you keep up keep up the work. Uh, the, uh, I mean, like I. Said, I think in that piece, I think what you guys have done is, is the most effective environmentalism in the history of environmentalism. Um, you know, you can see the results and it wouldn't, and it's definitely one of those things where it wouldn't have happened without you. So congratulations for, for everything you've done. Well, that means so much to me. Thank you very much. And thank you for being on the show. I uh, appreciate it. 
All right, that does it for us for this episode. And Anna Jane and I want to thank you all so much for listening once again. And thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music. And thank you to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. Thanks also to you, Mike Grunwald, for being a guest on the show. Yay! This episode was produced by podcast guru, Zach Mack, who doesn't currently have an electric vehicle, but we know when this podcast blows up and has millions of followers, is definitely eyeing a Tesla. Y'all, we would love your help making sure other people can find this podcast. So please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review. That is the most helpful thing you can do to help other people find the show. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be posting all the episodes and updates about upcoming episodes on our Twitter page at NPLH Podcasts. So be sure to follow us there. And we would like to hear from you. So if you like the show, if you have questions, if you want to read a dinner party climate fact, we'd love to have you record one and send it in. Just tweet at us. Um, Again, that is at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.